we're starting a new series. And the way I'd like to introduce that series is by giving you a definition that I think I've given you before. And I don't mean any disrespect because I think this is actually a codification of what a lot of people believe that Chief or Supreme Court Justice Anthony Ken- Kennedy in 1992 wrote. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. At the heart of liberty, if you want to know what liberty is, it means that you have the right as an individual to define your own concept of existence, your own concept of meaning, your own concept of what the universe is and what the mystery of human life is. That is what liberty is at its heart. Now, that is the prevailing definition of what it's like to be a human right now. If you want to be free, it's all about self-determination. What you think, what you feel, what's going on inside of you is the determinative force. Now, that's a great definition if there is no reality outside of you. If there isn't actually a world that's existing, if there is no God, then that's a good enough makeshift definition. But historically, people have believed, and Christians have continued to believe, that in fact, there is reality that's very different than what we come up with on our own. And so, as we come into this new year, one of the things I'm thinking of doing as we do this series is talking about not how we can self-improve with resolutions. Some of you come up with resolutions. Some of you used to do that. A lot of us like the new start. It's a new chance to try new practices. And all over the world right now, all over the interwebs and podcasts, you can find innumerable ways to enhance your financial portfolio, to get a better night's sleep, to increase your metabolism, to to lose weight, to have a better workout. You can find clues on how to parent better and and how to make your kids smarter, and all of that stuff. So I don't have anything to say about any of that. What I would like for us to do is try to figure out how we could not give ourselves to merely to self-improvement, but to resolutions for rootedness in reality, as the Bible describes it. Because that's the real way that mental health happens. That's the real way that health happens is when you live in accordance with the universe. If you don't live in accordance with it, you will find yourself bumping up against limits, bumping up against things that should not be, that will be injurious to you. So we're going to look at a very important concept in the Bible that will root us in reality, which is this, union with Christ. Now, that doesn't sound so sexy. I know that. Union with Christ? Come on! That's not very exciting. My job will be to help you see that it might actually be. That there might be an allure to it. That there might be something extraordinary about it that would free you from the 
tiny little world of coming up with your own meaning for existence, your own concept for yourself? What if the world is way bigger than your own little tiny insides? What if the presence of God, you could be rejoined to it and live as if it's with you and real? You may know the movie, A Beautiful Mind. It's one of my favorites. Economist John Nash, who wound up winning a Nobel Prize in economics, is a professor at Princeton. And if you haven't seen the movie, I'll ruin it for you. But it's like 20 years old. So, I mean, if you haven't seen it, you're not going to. But one of the things that's shocking about it is he is engaged in these furious mathematical equations and you think he's working for the CIA and you come to realize that he's completely in a fantasy world. He has split. He's broken from reality. He's had a schizophrenic break. And so this man whose mind is so remarkably keen and powerful cannot adjust to life as it is. He lives in a fabricated world. And there's a scene in the the, the despair of this, in the wake of this realization, where he's been medicated, he's had electroshock therapy, and his wife, Jennifer Connolly, comes to him, and she says to him, you want to know what's real? She takes his hand and puts it on her face. That's real, she says. And she puts her hand on his face and says, that's real. And then she puts his hand on her heartbeat. Do you feel that? That's real. Puts her hand on his heart. That's real. Maybe the thing that will help you know the difference between the dream and waking is not in your mind, she says. And as they hug, she says, I need to know that something extraordinary is possible. The question of reality is a big one. You spend a lot of your days in misery and fear because of pain that has not happened yet. Or pain that happened long ago. You spend a lot of time anticipating what awful things could come into your life that are not there yet. And they ruin your reality right now. You tell yourself all sorts of things about the circumstances of your life. It isn't the circumstances that make things hard for you. It's what you tell yourself about the circumstances that make things hard for you, which is why some people can deal with them quite fine and other people can't deal with them at all. The way you conceive reality is huge. And all of us, I think, especially people who bother on the first Sunday in January, where you can be assured that you will hear the best sermon of 2018 at Rock Creek Fellowship today. So far. But people who would hang out here want to know with Jennifer Connolly that something extraordinary is possible. And the Apostle Paul wants to assure you that indeed it is. And the way he came to know it was 
was after he had given himself to a strenuous life of training in the ways of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had learned Torah. He had been fastidious in his obedience to God. He had stood there when the first Christian martyr, Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, looking like an angel, was accepting the blows of an angry mob, throwing rocks and stones at him as his life waned away and he could see heaven open up. There was the Apostle Paul, then called Saul, watching on. A violent man. An intense man, putting down Christianity because it was a bastardization of true religion. It was not reality. But as he was going off, something happened. Like peals of lightning, a great light came upon him that blinded him. He looked directly at a solar eclipse from the heavens, and he was blinded. And he heard this voice as he met the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, whose, deniability, whose, reali- whose reality was now undeniable to Paul. And Jesus said this pecu- peculiar thing. He doesn't say, how dare you mess with Stephen? He's one of the best ones I've got. What were you doing sitting there looking on in approval while they stone this innocent man? How dare you try to put people who trust me in prison? That's mean. He didn't say any of that. He said something that would become the foundation of Paul's understanding of reality of what Christ was doing in the world. Jesus said this, this one interrogative statement. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Me, says Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Now, if Paul were a wiseacre, which you're not in a position to be, he could say, well, I've never even seen you. I've never persecuted you. How could I have done this? In the book of Galatians, Paul is reminding these Galatians, we preached about this a couple years ago, of the revelation that was given to him, not by any blog post that he read, not by any Twitter feed that he followed. There was no colloquium where he met with the brightest minds who came up with this story about Jesus. He says, everything that I preach to you that if you believe anything other than that, may you be cursed by, you know, by the angel of death, basically. If anybody preaches anything other than I'm preaching, let them be accursed, he says. So he's fairly confident that what he's saying is true and to be listened to. And he says he didn't receive it from any man, but he received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And the initial revelation he had from Jesus Christ was, why are you persecuting me whom he'd never met? And it stuck with him. And he came to see that Jesus was so identified with his people that anybody who would believe in this Jesus suddenly was in Jesus. And Jesus 
was in them, they were one. They were at one together. And it was so pronounced that Jesus could say, whatever harm happens to one of my people is harm that's being perpetrated against me. And this became the linchpin, a centerpiece of Paul's theology. So much so that he could say, all of history is divided into two people, Adam and Christ. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. You've heard us talk about this before, Romans 5. The Adam's one act of disobedience resulted in condemnation for everybody who's in him so that death would reign. And everybody who's in Christ, his act of righteousness spreads to the many to make them righteous. Paul got a hold of this, and it came to change the way he thought about everything. And it means that there are enchanted possibilities of being rooted in this reality of God's presence that actually exists. After knowing this, he tells the Philippians, you know, I had impeccable credentials. I don't have any good credentials. You just heard David Norman give a very impressive advertisement for a Sunday school class. You should go to it. David and KD and Scott Jones and Jessica and Kathy and I all went to seminary together. They got PhDs after seminary. I didn't. They're very smart. I'll leave it to you to make your own assessments. Paul had impeccable credentials. PhDs from Princeton and Edinburgh. And he said, you know what? I've come to know Christ, and it's so undadgum believably good, is how the Greek reads, that I don't care what I've had to lose or forfeit to come into contact with Christ. That's how fantastic it is. That's how alive I've now become. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. He has this sense that there's nothing better in his life than being able to be acquainted in deep, connected friendship and oneness with God through Christ. There's this enchanted possibility of being rooted in him. And Paul says it again in the Galatians, this Galatian letter when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I don't live anymore. But Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's holding out something to us that I'm hoping that we're going to be grasping for. Holding out a possibility to us of something extraordinary that I'm hoping we'll start to say, I, I need more of that. And I want to give you one particular way that you can start to think about and get yourself reoriented to reality by coming to believe that if you trust Christ, that he lives in you. That you're in him and he is in you. That what is true about him is true about you. That he, 
as the Hebrew scriptures say, everyone who dies on a tree is cursed by God, that he was cursed by God, and that was your death too. So there will be no cursing from God despite your many transgressions. I was crucified with Christ, he says. And I don't live anymore. I'm not the issue anymore. Christ lives in me. I have been rejoined so that I can become conscious now of Christ and not merely of myself. And if you start to believe this, if you start to say this is what reality is, that I am one with Christ and he is one with me, then it will free you from fretful self-watching. Most of you are taught to watch yourself. And you don't even really need to be taught it. But it's constantly reinforced in you. And Anthony Kennedy reinforces it as the definition of liberty. Pay inordinate attention to your own concepts, desires, wishes, thoughts. Because that's what being free is. And the Bible would say, that sounds to me like the worst kind of tyranny. Because think about your life. How much time do you spend making sure that people don't see you as you know yourself to be? How much effort do you spend trying to spin yourself to make you look better than you are? How many conversations do you avoid? How many phone calls? Just take a simple thing. Someone calls you on the phone and you say, I hate you for calling me on the phone because that means I have to call you back. Somebody laughed back there. Why do you, why do you hate to call somebody back? Well, there may be multiple reasons, but one of the reasons, as we've said before, is you can't self-edit. It's terrifying to you. Someone might see you. They might say, wow, they're really dumb. They don't know how to talk good when they're not scripted. It's terrifying to you to talk on a phone, to talk to somebody. Why is it terrifying to talk to somebody? Isn't that silly? Wouldn't it be nice not to be afraid of people? Wouldn't it be nice to walk away from conversations and not think about yourself? And out of the silent planet, the green lady on this unfallen planet doesn't even know the possibilities of consciousness of herself. She talks to the God of that world in free converse. She doesn't watch herself. There aren't mirrors there. And the tempter comes, and his whole goal is to separate her from her unbroken connection to God and says... Mirrors were given to teach this art. And she comes to see it and says, does everybody on your planet do this? Walk alongside themselves and watch themselves as if they're another person? He says, yes, this is what mirrors were made to teach. So every time you look in a mirror, realize you're being acted on tyrannically. Think about that in the morning when you shave. No, but seriously. You can look in a mirror. 
But do you realize that that's the first thing that happened when people got severed from God as they became aware of their own nakedness? They became aware that they were walking around and they didn't have their drawers on. How did they not know it before? Because they weren't watchful of themselves. And most of you know the freedom. You might get it with somebody you're really close to. You might get it in your work, which is probably why you overwork. You might get it in your sports, which is why you care about sports too much. You might get it when you're watching Netflix, which is why you watch Netflix too much. It's because there's something that is so relieving when you don't watch yourself. When you get to forget yourself for a minute. It's fantastic. Most of us only get it for a little seconds at a time. And the apostle would say, you know, this is actually the goal. I live my life by faith in the Son of God, not in myself. So what I practice is not introspection, but extrospection, if you're SAT bound. Extrospection. Outside. Beyond. That's what the prefix, the prefix extra means, or extra. We're, we're people who are learning to look outside of ourselves, not to burrow into ourselves. I've been watching a show called The Peaky Blinders. It's about an organized crime family in Birmingham, England, in the 20s. And Mr. Thomas Shelby is the head of this family. And he takes a break from all his criminal activity and he finds himself in a bad way. He's got war wounds and he starts drinking too much and he's filled with guilt and he's filled with shame and he's filled with internal static and noise and he's miserable. And his secretary comes in and says, Mr. Shelby, you're not well. I know Maxon's terrible. And he says to her, no, Francis, I know what this is. This is just myself talking to myself about myself. This is just myself talking to myself about myself. That is the definition of unreality that most people live in. It's ruining your relationships, it ruins your work. It makes you discontented with what you've got. It makes you discontented with what's been assigned to you. It makes relationships very hard because you're just watching yourself all the time. And Paul would say, hey, if you come to know God and you come to truly believe that he has been accursed for you so you're acceptable before him, And now he lives in you and you're not the issue anymore. The blessings of God can't be taken from you. The favor of God will not depart from you. And in fact, your personality can now come alive as you look outward to Christ and you listen to him instead of to yourself. You start listening to the one who made you for unbroken fellowship with him. Surpassingly great because it's surpassingly liberating.
The Apostle Paul says it's possible. It's not just possible, it's probable for anyone who gives themselves to the trust that Christ is actually in them and that Christ is actually for them and that Christ will actually resource you for everything that you encounter in your day-to-day life. Now, the problem of reality is is that you think and I think that something's not real unless it creates chill bumps on your arms, unless it causes a shiver in your liver, as one of our ridiculous professors used to say. Not ridiculous, it's a silly thing. A shiver in your liver. It makes you flutter in your stomach. And this is where the Bible would say, you know, there are realities that are operational. Just like when you look outside and you see the trees moving, it means there's a wind. You can't feel it. But it's animating those leaves and it's shaking those limbs. And we believe that the Spirit of God and the operation of Christ is what moves us and begets new life in us, whether you feel it happening or not. And we're going to encounter it here. A diet for being rooted in reality, where Christ gives his body and his blood, real food and real drink, his life pushed into you, actually, like magic, that you can take into yourself and become rooted more and more in truth.